Hi everyone, I'm Ian McLaughlin, PhD student in neuroscience over at the University of Pennsylvania, and well, it's been a while again. Yeah, no kidding. So what happened? Right, so, so and that's Bo, my, my fellow scientist co-host, and um, anyways, I honestly feel like we could do an episode on what's kept me diverted from being able to record another episode. So something with your research and your thesis? It's definitely a large part of it. I feel like that would be a good thing though, you know, to discuss, you know, what it takes to actually get a PhD in neuroscience or maybe science in general, uh, or maybe biomedical science. Sure. Um, I mean, I really do think there's enough to uh, compose a separate episode on things like, you know, what your ultimate goals are after getting a PhD and what the best way to devise a thesis project in pursuit of those goals might be. So it sounds like your thesis project could be going better? <laughs> well, for sure. Uh, the short story is that I underestimated how difficult it was going to be to conduct this series of experiments. Difficult in what way? Well, as I was studying neuroscience in college, I hadn't ever even heard of the techniques that I'm using right now. And those techniques are? So there, it's two in particular. Um, though most of what I'm doing now, I hadn't heard of in college, right? So chemogenetics and optogenetics. Both of these techniques are somewhat similar in that they're both modifications of neurons that result in the ability to experimentally control when and how frequently they fire impulses or action potentials, as we say in the biz. Okay, so if we're not gonna get into this topic that much right now, why don't we get to the topics that we are going to discuss today? And uh, before we go on, if any listeners have enjoyed the podcast, we'd love a nice rating on iTunes, please. Yes, it'd be much appreciated. Anyways, um, I have another three topics for us to discuss today. And how many of those topics are related to Yanni versus Laurel? <laughs> Actually, it's not one of the topics um, I prepared, though I think we can probably dispatch with that topic fairly easily if you want to talk about it, actually. Okay, well, I think that would make sense. I'm still hearing people bring it up all the time. Okay, well, I'll see if I can drop in a clip of the recording, like in right here, if I can. Laurel. 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 Otherwise, for anyone who doesn't live on social media these days, this was basically a newer version of the blue and black versus white and gold dress debate, but via the auditory system rather than the visual system. Right, so basically this is a recording that sounds kind of distorted and it sounds like someone used their phone to record a word being played over laptop speakers. Yeah, and, and you can kind of hear what sounds even like, like a MacBook Pro trackpad clicking sound in it. Uh, of course, I'm not sure, but... I actually think that inevitable loss in quality from the original recording, you know, due to the fact that we are multiple devices away from the original person saying the word. Right, like a person saying a word into a microphone, like we are. That's the first device. And then it's processed in some kind of software, uh, maybe like the kind that we used to record the podcast. And then it's played over computer speakers. And then don't forget that whatever website the recorded and processed audio clip is used to upload probably has its own compression algorithm to minimize file size for use on the internet. Another good point. And another uh, area where the original data is altered. That's right. And if anyone's ever downloaded different image file types, you probably have a sense of this, right? It's like the difference between a JPEG and a TIFF, for example. It's sort of like what we're talking about here when it comes to compression algorithms. A TIFF is essentially the original image with all of the data necessary to give you as close to a 100% accurate reproduction of the original thing as possible. But for most applications, and the internet in particular, you really don't need to conserve all those data. You don't need to be able to resize the image or alter the color profile. You just want it to look good in a little part of a website. 
So as a result, you can just chop away a lot of that extra data so that pe uh, people can download it far more rapidly. That's a JPEG, right? But then when you do try and go back to resize uh, the image, um, it looks like garbage, right? It gets all pixelated. And that's because you'd sacrifice the ability to modify the image for reducing image size. There's almost certainly a similar principle when you're downloading an audio clip from a website. And so you have the original recording equipment, then the computer initially processing the recorded word, then the upload to the website, then the download from the website, then playing it over what sounds like some basic laptop speakers, possibly in a room full of other sounds like an air conditioner or even a laptop cooling fan, and then the recording from the device that's not really made to record perfectly, uploaded to Twitter, and then downloaded and played by all the people listening to it. And then the headphones and listening conditions of all the people trying to figure out what this person's saying. So yeah, there are a ton of opportunities for this audio recording to be corrupted. And then consider that all of this is happening before the sound waves ever even hit your hair cells in your auditory system, right? And that's where some interesting variability seems to have resulted in 47% of people hearing Yanny, while 53% hear Laurel. And which did you hear? I heard Laurel, and there wasn't even a minor possibility in my mind that people were actually hearing Yanny. My gut reaction, or Yanni, uh, my gut reaction was that the, the Yanni people were just sort of master trolling the rest of Twitter, but this didn't happen to me with the dress color situation, right? I always saw the same colors, but in this case, I actually was able to hear Yanni one time. I was switching between headphones, going from my sort of standard ones to a nicer pair that I have, and while I was taking off the, the standard ones, like while I was sort of almost out of my ear, but not entirely, I most definitely heard Yanni. <laughs> So that's, that's pretty funny, you heard both. I was totally shocked because it wasn't a faint, muddled thing that I heard. I literally just heard the word Yanny. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so what did you hear? I am 100% Laurel all the way. Yeah, okay. Um, there are two sort of explanations for what's going on here, and one is a bit more uh, neuroscience-y than the other, and the other is just much simpler. And so the, the simple explanation was supported by some folks on Twitter who analyzed the sound wave of the file. And so some of them compared the audio signature of them saying the words Yanni or Laurel and discovered that they're actually more similar than they may seem to be. What, like the shape of the audio curves? Yeah, uh, pretty much. Um, but then, the best sound analysis I've seen was done by a guy named uh, Steve Pomeroy. I, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but Steve Pomeroy on Twitter or at XXV, who posted a series of modifications to the Yanni Laurel recording. He pitch shifted it either up or down, making it more trebly or more bassy by 10% steps. And so once he pitch shifted it down by 30%, Yanni is much easier to hear. And at least for me, Laurel completely disappears. And then the opposite happens when you shift the recording by 30% in the opposite direction. So shifting it to sound higher pitched like Alvin and the Chipmunks? Yeah, that's right. So, so in other words, there seem to be differences in what people hear depending upon which pitches within the recording are dominant to the person listening either higher or lower pitches. Exactly. And your brain does this automatically. And this gets us into the sort of neuroscience of what's going on here. The brain's auditory system is constantly getting bombarded with audio waves all over the place, particularly in a place like a bar or a concert or whatever. Like if your friend's trying to talk to you but flogging Molly is playing over the loudspeaker at a pub, 
your brain can still select the signal of your friend's speech amidst the noise of the rest of the people talking and the music playing. It's ignoring the majority of the audio information to enable you to focus on what matters. And so part of this is focusing on, or focusing your attention on specific frequencies and de-emphasizing others. It's totally automatic. And by the way, your auditory system will automatically lean on your visual system to perform this feat as well. What do you mean by lean on it? Like the auditory system will actually integrate some visual uh, context to better understand what someone's um, saying. So there, there's a really remarkable series of experiments that showed that experimenters can alter what you hear from a single recording by pairing it with a video recording of someone saying different things. So you have a video of someone mouthing different words, but it's always the same audio recording. Yeah, sort of. And so they're very basic sounds, right? Like da or ba or ga. So, you know, imagine I just continue saying da, 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 right, with the D. And then there's a video of me either mouthing the sound da or perhaps mouthing the sound ba with a B. And so if we pair that audio recording of da with a video recording of ba with my lips coming together to make the B sound, a large percentage of people will hear ba with a B instead of da with a D. And this is called the McGurk effect. Too bad we can't really do that experiment over a podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it depends upon visual stimulation, right? And so and that's kind of an issue. But it is a super cool auditory visual illusion, and it's always a big hit in um, the classroom. And I should say that there are a bunch of really neat auditory illusions that a lot of people um, find to be fun, um, but are great ways to learn about the auditory system. And so one of my favorites is the shepherd tone. And I'll drop it in here if I can. experience what sounds like an ever-rising tone which never actually increases in pitch. And so think of um, those cylinders that used to be outside of, um, you know, like barbershops. Yeah, those like spiral things that with the red, white, and blue, or black and white or something. Yeah, exactly. So it looks like it's moving up when, of course, it's not. It's just rotating. Yeah, this is like the auditory version of a barber's pole which um, used to denote a place where people could go to either get their hair cut as well as have surgery performed. Barbers doing surgery? Yeah, uh, the origins of surgery are super interesting, uh, but anyways, I think we're getting a little too discursive even for us. Okay, <laughs> so let's get back to the uh, Yanni versus Laurel. Uh, I think that I saw that some people were suggesting age might play a role in what people heard. Yeah, um, and so as we age, it becomes more difficult to register higher frequencies. So, you know, either via life experiences like going to too many loud pubs or concerts, or like doing target practice with firearms, or working around loud machinery, the little hair cells that vibrate at higher frequencies tend to break, and they're not replaced. And so they were saying that people uh, who are older have a different distribution of hair cells than younger people, so they'll only be able to hear certain parts of the recording while younger ears uh, in general may be more sensitive to more of the recording. That's exactly right. Now, there is also a psychological argument some were making. And one thing that Daryl, a member of the Slack group, brought up was the possibility that people were being primed to hear one or the other, Yanni or Laurel. Had they never seen people suggest that they hear one or the other of those two words, who's to say that they might have experienced this distorted recording totally differently? And there are a ton of really cool old school experiments that effectively demonstrate this, this effect, right? 
the researchers will play what literally sounds like just white noise a few times, and then they'll ask you if you heard the word elephant. They'll play the same clip, and all of a sudden you can't stop hearing elephant. Okay, so I'm pretty sure I've seen those experiments, and it always reminds me of those like ghost hunter type TV shows where they record audio in like a super creepy abandoned hotel room or something, and there's night vision to like, you know up the creep factor, and you know when you play it back, they always claim that they're gonna hear something like an old man saying like "get out" or something like that, yeah. and you can kind of hear right. it, but until they suggest it. Uh, like you wouldn't know. Yeah, for sure. Um, and th that's actually exactly what we're talking about here. And so I saw some of science Twitter using this to explain it. And frankly, I don't think that likely explains the lion's share of people's experiences here. Um, the clip is distorted, right? But I don't think I have to prime people to get them to hear a word of some sort, right? Though perhaps some people may have been biased in what they ultimately hear by seeing people say it's one or the other. Okay, so is that all of the neuroscience answer? Well, I mean, so there's a bit more. And so the, the simple explanation kind of helps us dive into the more neurophysiological explanation. So the simple explanation was that there are almost like two overlaid audio waves over the same file. One that sounds like Laurel and one that sounds like Yanni. Uh, do we know what the original recording was? Yeah, and so the original recording was Laurel. But there are pitches that can be measured, right, within the audio wave that say Yanni, either because someone was like brilliantly trolling everyone or because of the various steps of distortion uh, that we were talking about resulted in another set of tones that could be perceived as Yanni. So the answer is a combination of just how audio data are handled from you know, device to device to website to headphones and so on, along with whether a person is predisposed to hearing higher pitches. Okay. So now that we've settled that issue, <laughs> let's get on to the bulk of the podcast today, our three topics. <laughs> okay. So, so the first is a recent announcement of a new preventative treatment for migraine, and it's what's called, quote, first in class. So it's the first example of a medication to treat a certain condition, like there aren't other treatments like this on the market? Right. And so there are often multiple similar alternatives for medications to treat a given condition. And some people respond to some of them better than others. Gotcha. Then we'll discuss a paper that came out a while ago that suggests that a certain kind of exercise may be helpful for people who are either at risk of developing or have been recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. I kind of remember you saying that exercise hasn't actually been shown to be particularly helpful for dementia. So this contradicts that? Yes, um, and so studies in the past have evaluated whether exercise might be advisable for the prevention and treatment of Alzheimer's disease, but there have been few broader analyses of all of these studies, and among those that have been done, there have been mixed results. But earlier this year, in 2018, a meta-analysis was conducted to evaluate just that, how useful exercise is to prevent or even treat Alzheimer's disease in particular. And what's cool about this meta-analysis in particular is the statistical standards they applied, which are more sophisticated than those that have been used in past meta-analyses. And I know we said this before, but a meta-analysis or meta-analysis, however you want to pronounce that part, <laughs> is basically like a review of reviews, right? So physicians and scientists can try to come up uh, with some broader conclusions. Right, yeah, it basically involves the use of uh, statistics to analyze the data from multiple studies, right? So it's a way you can pool the data derived from the work of different groups to hopefully get closer to the most accurate possible conclusion. Okay, and what is the last topic? 
Well, there was a study published in Current Biology that was basically an intense survey approach to see if there might be a universality to music derived from a human capability of people from all over the world to categorize musical types despite being unfamiliar with the ethnic origins of the music. And what do you mean by categories of musical types? Is that genres? Sort of. I mean, it's basically to see if people were able to, able to tell whether a song from a completely unfamiliar culture would be played at situations like celebrations or funerals or ceremonies or, you know, like dance parties. Okay, so sort of like being able to tell what the applications of the music would be without having any particular context for when these kinds of music would actually be played. Exactly. And so just by listening to super short snippets of recordings from songs played by groups, you know, again, from different societies, the group evaluated whether people could tell what the purpose or goal of the music was, which is sort of controversial. Really? I mean, it makes sense to me. But why would it be controversial? Yeah, so the idea that there may be some universal features of music contradicts the opinions of many academics who study music and society. Okay, that's interesting enough. So let's take them in order. Okay, yeah, so let's get started. Well, on May 17th of 2018, about a week before we're recording this, the FDA approved a new treatment for migraines. It's a monoclonal treatment to prevent migraines, which would be injected monthly. And is the fact that it's monoclonal important? Like, what does that even mean? Yeah, yeah. So it is kind of important. So, so first of all, it's the first time an antibody-mediated therapeutic will have ever been administered for um, the treatment of migraine. And so there are two possibilities when it comes to antibody medications. They're either monoclonal or polyclonal. Meaning one or many? Yeah, right. So polyclonal antibodies are basically a collection of antibodies that are able to recognize multiple features of the same target. So, you know, if you could imagine a a soccer ball. Or a football ball for our international listeners. Right, yeah. So if you're outside of the U.S., a football ball. Uh, And by the way, the word soccer was actually invented in the U.K., so all that snobbery and snark from across the pond by people from the U.K. heaped upon us, we of the U.S.A. is entirely unwarranted. Well, get ready for some hate mail. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So anyways, um, if you can imagine a soccer ball, it has those lovely little facets, right? 12 pentagons and 20 hexagons to be specific. A truncated icosahedron, in other words. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Okay. So, So let's pretend a bit more here, right? Imagine that there's a virus that's shaped just like a soccer ball. It's spherical, and it's composed of uh, hexagonal and pentagonal uh, sheets, right? Just like a soccer ball. And once more, let's pretend that each one of those facets, each one of those pentagons and hexagons, is a different color. So we now have a rainbow-colored soccer ball. Exactly. And so for an antibody to defeat this soccer ball-shaped pathogen, uh, it'd need to be able to recognize one of those colored facets to be able to bind and release its biochemical weaponry to kill the pathogen. It'd have to be able to, to at least recognize like a red hexagon or a green pentagon. And what does this have to do with monoclonal versus polyclonal antibodies? Well, so polyclonal antibodies would be able to recognize multiple facets of this invading soccer ball virus, right? They'd be able to recognize and bind to a red hexagon, and then also both pink and purple pentagons. And I guess that monoclonal antibodies would only be able to recognize one of those colored shapes, like only the red hexagon. That's right. They're all basically identical antibodies. And so without going into how antibodies bind the pathogens they bind and and so on, they have a much more restricted, but then also much more specific target. So that sounds like a pretty important distinction. Um, But why wouldn't you want 
polyclonal antibodies, um, especially to fight something off like the flu virus, given how rapidly it changes from season to season. Right. Well, when it comes to our immune system, we have a combination of both of these strategies to combat invaders. But if you're trying to design a medication to target a very specific protein, you really don't want it to be too promiscuous in what it binds. Because if it binds more than what you want it to, you'll get side effects? Yeah, exactly. And if you've ever seen any of those pictures that I have up on our website, oftentimes proteins that are associated with you know, dopamine or acetylcholine are assigned a specific color. Well, just like our immune system relies on antibodies to be able to recognize an invading pathogen, like the influenza virus, which causes the flu, of course, or rhinoviruses, which cause most colds, and by the way, look sort of like soccer balls, the virus literally looks like a soccer ball? Yeah, it sort of does. The, the viral particles are, are little icosahedrons, so they're actually pretty similar. Um, but anyways, just like antibodies need to be able to recognize specific parts of pathogens, I rely on antibodies to recognize specific proteins that are responsible for manufacturing things like dopamine or acetylcholine. So rather than recognizing a pathogen, the antibodies you're using are targeting the little enzymes that make neurotransmitters. Kind of like a homing missile, you know, and how it's intended to target a very specific enemy. Right. But since I want to see all of the parts of the brain that manufacture a given neurotransmitter, having an antibody that's able to recognize anything even close to that target can be very helpful. So as a result, polyclonal antibodies can be super helpful for my purposes and those of other researchers. But if we're relying on an antibody to home in on one very specific protein or biochemical target, and we need to make sure that we're not risking any potential false positives or events where the antibody is binding something that's similar but not actually the true target, then a monoclonal antibody can be very useful. So it's kind of like you either go for the ability to catch a target or anything even close to the target, or you go for precisely the target, and any deviation from that target is, is ignored. That's exactly right. And so th this new treatment for migraine is a monoclonal, or more specifically targeted, antibody-mediated treatment for migraine. Uh, the trade name for it is Amovic. Um, otherwise known as arenumab or arenumab. Um, I'm not really sure how they're pronouncing it. And it's being shown to cut down migraines in half for about 50% of patients who receive the treatment. Okay, to be clear, for 50% of the patients evaluated, it cut down the frequency of migraine by 50%. So in other words, half the patients who were evaluated experienced half the migraines that they used to have after being treated with this new antibody medication. That's right. And so how does it work? So it blocks CGRP, or calcitonin gene-related peptide. And I'm sure I don't have to ask, but what is, what is this peptide? What does it do? Well, it's kind of complicated because it has a variety of functions. I mean, it's expressed all over the body. And by express, you mean that it's manufactured by cells in the body? That's right, yeah. So think of like artists or musicians expressing themselves through paintings or music. That's what we mean by a protein being expressed in various parts of the body. When it comes to CGRP, it's expressed all throughout the body in neurons that are part of both the central and peripheral nervous systems. And the central nervous system is basically just the brain and spinal cord, while the peripheral nervous system is the rest of the stuff that controls uh, stuff like your muscles and pain and sensations. Yeah, that's right. And CGRP is expressed by neurons in both of these parts of the nervous system. And, you know, the peptide itself. And by peptide, you mean... <laughs> right, right, yeah. So a, a peptide is basically like a super-duper tiny protein. Um, both are composed of amino acids, which are basically just elaborate molecules that all contain similar shapes. Most people are probably familiar with amino acids without knowing it, right? Particularly around Thanksgiving, a lot of people talk about 
about tryptophan. And tryptophan is an amino acid that people mistakenly think is consumed at particularly high levels during that holiday in the US. Well, there are about 20 versions of molecules like tryptophan, amino acids, that are slightly different, and they go by different names. And so depending upon the combination of these amino acids, you get different proteins. Things like muscles or receptors. That's right. And so those are two pretty different types of proteins, and they're capable of doing such different things because of the different amino acids that compose them or interact with other biomolecules to make things happen. Anyways, CGRP is involved in a bunch of things, from influencing when blood vessels dilate or constrict, to the processes um, underlying wound healing, to regulating pain-related signaling. Okay, so maybe that last reason, the fact that it regulates pain signaling, uh, explains why it might be such a useful strategy to alter uh, it's signaling when it comes to migraines? For sure. Um, in fact, the CGRP pathway has been implicated in the pathogenesis, or the cause, essentially, of migraines for a while now. So in the 90s, uh, there were data correlating the peptide to migraine attacks. And since then, work has been done to identify which specific receptors CGRP itself binds and how they might regulate the um, neurophysiological signaling to reduce pain. Um, it's you know, kind of boring and not particularly useful to go system by system. So if anybody's really interested in that level of uh, um, granularity, a review published by Lars Edvinson um, from the Institute of Clinical Sciences at Lund University in Sweden, which was published in the journal Headaches, appropriately named, <laughs> seems like a pretty solid review of the rationale behind developing medications to target this system. So I love that there is a journal named Headache. <laughs> yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go read Headache. I'm going to go get a copy of Headache. <laughs> yeah, just- uh, lounge on the beach and read headache. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's comforting in a way to, you know, hear a scientist or physician rattle off a bunch of neurotransmitters, but I know that I personally really can't make much use of that information. So it's just kind of good to know that at least someone out there knows the stuff <laughs> yeah, and right. they're involved in developing the medications to treat these conditions that affect a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I totally agree. You know, it's not particularly useful, even as a neuroscientist, believe it or not. You know, and, and this is a total tangent, but I do totally get the desire and even... Uh, uh, the desire to understand and even memorize the uh, neuropharmacologies of various drugs. And in fact, when I was going through the various interviews for uh, graduate neuroscience programs, it was one of my go-to answers. What do you mean? Why? Well, so one of the first rabbit holes that ultimately led me to neuroscience was considering things like why exactly caffeine is stimulating. I think we've talked about this in the past, but I mean, you know, basically everyone acknowledges that coffee, you know, stimulates people. Uh, But if you want to know why it stimulates people, there's a whole mystery to be solved, right? Why does coffee stimulate people? Because of caffeine. Sure. Of course, that's that's a good answer. That's the primary reason. But why is caffeine stimulating? Uh, because it binds some receptors of uh, something, and then abacadabra, you get jittery. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And, and it's, a, it's a adenosine receptor antagonist. It prevents an amino acid called adenosine from binding all of the receptors that it otherwise bind if caffeine weren't in the way. And so that's why it's a stimulant. Well, sure. I mean, that's a good question. Right? Why does that make people less sleepy? And why are some people more sensitive to this stimulant effect of caffeine than others? Yeah, I know some people who can drink an espresso like an hour before going to bed. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, you know, that's not how I, by the way, uh, respond to caffeine. You know, so while you go down this rabbit hole, there are a bunch of interesting points along the way. Coffee has a molecule in it called caffeine, and it's part of a family of a class of molecules called methylxanthines, and it binds a receptor in the brain called adenosine receptors. And there are four types of adenosine receptors, and it just prevents adenosine binding, which is an amino acid, and that's kind of weird, right, from binding those receptors, and on and on you go, right? 
And while that's interesting and pretty amazing to be able to even know that, it's not like all of that knowledge would change how many cups of tea or coffee you have in the morning, right? Right. I imagine it's helpful to know if you're trying to design a drug that'll target the receptors that caffeine might bind to, but I'm going to drink my black tea every morning regardless. <laughs> That's right. And so maybe if you're a person who still considers that journey of knowing why it is that molecules like caffeine or, or alcohol or, or even DMT or heroin interact with the brain to produce the effects that they do, maybe you should consider going into biomedical science. Nice plug. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm repping, repping the field. <laughs> Um, so anyways, fundamentally, the reason it's not particularly useful to have every known neurochemical involved in a given biochemical cascade associated with the action of a given drug, at least as someone who's not directly involved in that pertinent research, is that today there's always something we've yet to identify. There's always something we haven't yet discovered. In other words, you mean we just haven't discovered all there is to discover, especially when it comes to how drugs work in the brain. That's right. So all of this to say that you don't want to go into the details of how this drug works to <laughs> no, treat no. migraines. <laughs> so if anybody's interested, the review by Edvinson gives a, a pretty good rationale for why people were even interested in CGRP in the first place. But all of that said, clinical trials for arenamab have been going on for a while now, and there's a number of clinical trials that have been done. And I assume most of them have shown that reduces migraines, given that it's approved by the FDA. Right, though given that there isn't 100% effective treatment for migraine, the barrier wasn't particularly high. So for example, as Beth uh, Swarecki, and you know, you're, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that last name, um, as she points out, there are still a few unknowns when it comes to this medication. So for example, as Elizabeth Loader points out, the FDA is still requesting that Amgen maintain surveillance for liver toxicity, myocardial infarction, and stroke post-marketing. Okay, so let's be clear about what that means. Amgen is the company that's manufacturing this migraine drug. That's right, and, and I'm pretty sure it's, a, it's actually a partnership between Amgen and Novartis. Oh, Novartis. Uh, sort of a loaded name right now. <laughs> yeah, so I mean the vast majority of these studies were performed before any of the recent news articles would have even been applicable. Okay, well anyways, uh, the other things that were brought up were that there were still unknown uh, side effects of the drug on the body. Right, so for example, we don't know if there may be any problems with the consumption of the medication during pregnancy, right, or during breastfeeding. And by the way, it's worth noting that many women experience their first migraine after becoming pregnant. And statistics show that women experience migraines more frequently than men. And if this new medication is particularly effective to treat migraines, and some pregnant women develop migraines, it would be important to know if it's safe for a <laughs> developing baby. Exactly. Uh, and then, like we said, liver or cardiotoxicity from longer-term use still needs to be evaluated. Now, all of that said, like many drugs that are in development, other companies have competing medications that are on deck for, um, from a regulatory perspective. On deck? Right, that's, that's a baseball thing. Like, like someone who's on deck is the next uh, to be at bat. So you're saying that other companies have been working on similar types of treatments for migraines that are also antibodies? That's right. And uh, this might be the largest number of sports references in this podcast so far. Like all two of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, so two other large pharmaceutical companies are in a race to get the second migraine medication on the market. Eli Lilly, an American pharmaceutical company headquartered in Indiana, founded, by the way, by a chemist named Eli Lilly, shocking, I know, who fought in the American Civil War, which is kind of cool, is competing with uh, Teva or Teva Pharmaceutical, an Israeli pharmaceutical company. Um, both are, of course, multinational companies, but it's clear that discovering and delivering a treatment for migraine is an international priority. 
So it seems like all of a sudden there are going to be a bunch of options for people who suffer from migraines, which is awesome. Uh, and it's beyond the one that was just announced, the... Uh, Aimovic. Aimovic, okay. <laughs> there are going to be alternatives. Yeah, so Eli Lilly is working on one called galcanizumab, and Teva is working on one called Freminazumab. And, you know, these names are just brutal. <laughs> Maybe they'll come up with something a little bit more marketing friendly. Yeah, that'd be nice. Okay, so that's a great positive note to end on. Uh, let's move on to the next topic, exercise and Alzheimer's. And I feel like it's one of those things that tends to come up when people are interested in natural or non-pharmaceutical solutions to Alzheimer's disease. For sure. And it totally makes sense that people would want to know if they could do more, right, beyond taking a pill to improve symptoms or oftentimes prevent it altogether. Honestly, I have the same concern. And, you know, dementia, of which Alzheimer's is the most common cause among older adults, is one of the most emotionally devastating conditions one can suffer from. Of course, you know, the patient suffers the most, but everyone who loves that person is deeply affected because the very foundations of their loved one's personality are shattered. For all intents and purposes, their loved one appears largely unchanged, but their mind has fundamentally changed. Yeah, I can only imagine how horrible that is. Yeah, so it's very easy to imagine why people would be interested in knowing if there's any way to reduce the risks of dementia. And so scientists have been on that same page for a while. Specifically, groups have been trying to see if there are lifestyle factors that might influence risks of dementia. And when you say lifestyle, that's just basically the things that people do day to day, right? Right, like what people eat, how much they exercise, how much they read or, or challenge themselves cognitively, or how much they interact with other people. Okay, and today we are going to be talking about exercise specifically. Yeah, um, so a team at the University of Connecticut, Hartford Hospital, as well as people at the University of Alabama at Tuscaloosa, published a paper in the Journal of American Geriatric Society, which also is a meta-review. Or, to review, another <laughs> pooling of data from multiple studies on a specific topic to see if there might be a broader effect that they can draw from the collection of works. Exactly. And so in this case, they're focused on exercise, which is one of those things that we all know is broadly associated with health benefits, right? We all know it's a good idea to exercise and a bad idea to be completely sedentary. And most people also likely have a sort of a loose concept of why exercise is healthy, maybe like the heart or at least body weight probably benefits from exercise. Well, when it comes to cognitive health, the relationships are likely pretty unclear to most people, since the brain isn't a muscle like the heart or biceps. Or gluteus maximus. <laughs> That's right. The brain isn't like the butt. <laughs> Anyways, even among biomedical scientists who pay attention to studies of the effects of exercise on dementia, it's not like the evidence has been universally supportive. It's just a reality that not all studies of exercise um, among adults at the ages when dementia becomes a larger risk have suggested that there's a measurable benefit uh, beneficial effect, let's say, from exercise. Some have, but it's not exactly unanimous. Okay, so what's the news then? So this group, um, this partnership, did a meta-review of 19 studies that focused on the effects of exercise on cognitive function in older adults who are either diagnosed with Alzheimer's or at least were at risk of developing the disease. And it turned out that older adults who did aerobic exercise exhibited cognitive function that was three times improved relative to those who did no exercise as, at all. And then there is also a group who did a combination of aerobic and strength training. Okay, so in other words, the aerobic exercise group did better than those doing zero exercise at all, but also better than the group that did a combination of aerobic and basically like weightlifting. Right, though 
while it seemed like adults who did aerobic exercise tended to show the greatest improvements, when compared to the group who did no exercise, any kind of exercise whatsoever was associated with at least small improvements in cognitive function. So it didn't matter what kind of exercise. That's right. Okay, so aerobic exercise looks like the most valuable, but really any kind of exercise is better than nothing. Yeah, that, that's what it seems like. And so, so the, the World Health Organization, or WHO, or WHO, recommends that adults over the age of 65 perform at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise a week. Uh, okay, so that would be two and a half hours of exercise a week for people who don't measure their lives in minutes. <laughs> right. It's kind of funny that they uh, release these numbers in, in those units. But anyways, they alternatively suggest 75 minutes of vigorous intensity um, aerobic exercise uh, training or some combination of the two, along with muscle strengthening activities on two or more days a week. Okay, so for people who are listening, this group basically found that exercise is associated with cognitive health as we age. Pretty much. That's right. So in addition to being associated with improved cardiovascular and, and metabolic health, there's some evidence to suggest that doing some cardiovascular exercise is good for your cognitive health. And that could mean just a brisk walk for like 20 minutes every day might make a difference to keep our minds sharper as we get older. All right. So we should all try to be physically active whenever we can. And I mean, 20 minutes sounds like a lot longer than it really is. Uh, I mean, if you have an audiobook or a podcast like this one, <laughs> 20 minutes flies by. Exactly. Okay, well, let's move on to our next topic. Sure. So as we introed, there was a study that came out that explored if there may be a universality to music. And the group focused on whether people from different cultural backgrounds might be able to recognize categories of music from unfamiliar cultures. Right. So in other words, I could tell if a song from a culture I've never even heard of uh, might be used for like a funeral or a birthday party. Yeah, exactly. And so as humans in societies, we use music for a variety of social functions. You know, I, for one, regularly use music while I'm working, you know, to help me concentrate. But more broadly, music is used for a variety of social functions, like you suggested, like dancing or, or soothing babies with lullabies, but also to communicate things like affection and love or, or spiritual ceremonies or, or rituals, like you suggested. Okay, I mean, it honestly seems like this wouldn't be too hard to believe. I mean, I think it'd be totally clear if someone played a dance song from a different culture at a funeral. <laughs> yeah, right, but it's actually not entirely clear, or at least it's been controversial among different academic disciplines. But before we go there, let's get into the fundamental argument behind why we might expect there might be some universality to music. Okay. Just how deep does this fundamental argument go? Sure. So this group at Harvard argues that everything from frogs, hawks, deer, and even some fish tend to make certain kinds of sounds for similar reasons. Low frequency and harsh vocalizations tend to signal hostility. Like growling. Yeah, sort of. Uh, but the concept is that these types of sounds tend to be associated with animals of larger body sizes. And when two animals come into conflict, larger animals tend to defeat smaller animals. So then animals that are smaller will try to figure out ways to come across as large, uh, as large as they can by making sounds that other animals would probably expect from imposingly large animals. Like uh, if a house cat could roar like a lion, you'd probably freak out way more than some typical meows. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, dogs bark for similar reasons as you brought up um, or growl. 
So, you know, make a big sound, freak whatever might be threatening you out, and perhaps you persuade it to move on its merry way, even if it's bigger than you. Especially if it's bigger than you. That's right. And so this is probably the part of the group's theoretical framework that's intuitive, right? You hear a dog bark or growl, you probably don't need to know all that much about canine behavior to know that they're not trying to get you to pet them. Or if a bear roars in front of you, you know, it's and it's not a well-trained pet bear or something that wants to snuggle, you know, you'll know what to do. <laughs> or maybe more relevantly, if a stranger walks up to you on the street and just starts screaming, he's probably not trying to just get to know you. Well, there are academics and disciplines that specifically study music and cultures that confront this concept with some skepticism because the evidence for universal elements of, of music has been pretty shaky. So this is the controversy. Right, and you know, Likely, with that in mind, the authors of this paper did a survey of 940 academics who self-report affiliations with disciplines like ethnomusicology, music theory, psychology, and cognitive sciences, and a collection of, of other forms of scholarship. Okay, so they pulled a bunch of academics from a bunch of backgrounds. Yeah, and they were asked to predict the outcomes of two experiments that were designed to ask two questions. First, can people accurately identify the social function of each piece of music on the basis of form alone? And then, second, are people's ratings consistent with one another, or do different groups of people tend to identify certain kinds of songs as fulfilling different social functions? And I bet there was a difference between the disciplines. That's right, and a pretty substantial one at that. Um, so among the cognitive sciences, about 73% predict that listeners would accurately identify the social functions of songs from unfamiliar cultures, and about 73% also predicted that those ratings would be consistent across the people polled. However, among the ethnomusicologists... Uh, the, the ethnomusic... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So among scholars of music and society, in other words, only about 29% of them predicted that general members of society would accurately identify the social functions of music from cultures that are totally unfamiliar, right? And then even fewer of those scholars predicted that there'd be agreement among people regarding those social functions. Okay, so wait. The people that study music and society expected that basically no one would be able to figure out the social applications of the music that they've never heard of. And beyond that, they assumed that it's not like people would sort of all get it wrong in the same direction. Like people wouldn't consistently make the same mistake. They predicted that there are very few universal features of music and how it's interpreted across cultures. Right, and they probed this in an interesting way asking some you know, creative questions. And it's kind of hard to explain, but so, so the researchers were fundamentally asking if there might be some kind of consistent mistake that people were making, or is the social relevance of types of music completely inconsistent between distinct cultures? And then the rest of the scholars who were surveyed fell at about half and half. About half of the music theory scholars surveyed, uh, for example, predicted that people would accurately identify social function of unfamiliar music and would agree with one another. So basically, there's pretty substantial disagreement among scholars on this topic. Uh, in one group, we have brain scientists and psychologists who think there's something consistent to how we interact with music. Right, and no matter where we're from or no matter where the music's from. And on the other side, the scholars of music and culture are pretty skeptical of this idea. And there's some solid research on which they base this skepticism. Exactly. And so these scholars were asked to predict the outcome of two imaginary experiments. Then the authors went ahead and performed those experiments. And so they collected some excerpts from the Natural History of Song Discography. 
Right, that was going to be my next question. Like, where did they even get the music for the survey? Yeah, and so so they got these excerpts from something called the Natural History of Song Discography. And so they, they drew music pseudo-randomly from 86 small-scale societies distributed throughout the world. And there's a figure that they include that does a, a good job of showing just how globally distributed um, the music sources were. All right, so we're looking at the chart that Ian's going to post on the website. Right. And I'm seeing four categories of music that are drawn from places all over the world. And these categories are dance, healing, love, and lullaby. And some parts of the world only had one of these ca categories represented, like Central Russia only has a love song, and uh, Super North Canada only has a lullaby. But that's just the pseudo-randomness of the study. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how exactly they explain that, or if that's not really so big of a deal. Um, I suppose so long as the unfamiliarity of the music is consistent among those surveyed, mission accomplished, right? But anyways, um, they had participants, 750 people from 60 different countries distributed all over the world, listened to 14 second clips of these excerpts of music, and then they were asked to identify the purpose of um, each song. And so the purposes listed were uh, dancing, soothing babies, healing some form of illness, expressing love to another, uh, to mourn the dead, or to tell some kind of story. But importantly, they actually didn't include any songs that would be pr uh, used for mourning the dead or for storytelling. So they're, those are basically like decoy categories. Yeah, that's right, exactly. And what were the results? Okay, well it turned out that, despite having basically zero familiarity with the cultures from which these songs originated, the listeners, who again came from all over the world, were able to identify um, the social functions of the songs based on just those 14 second clips. So they could tell, in other words. Contrary to what the music and society scholars expected, people could tell what the appropriate venues would be for completely unfamiliar music. Yeah, it didn't matter where the listener was from or where the song was from. People could tell why other totally unfamiliar people were playing a totally unfamiliar kind of music. They'd think, yeah, I'm clearly supposed to be dancing to this music, or this is clearly written for babies to calm down, right? It, it gets a bit more interesting after this, though. They then asked a new set of a thousand people, either from the US or India, to characterize these unfamiliar music clips according to what they called contextual features. How many singers were there? Uh, what was the gender of the singer or singers? Um, how many instruments were involved? And then they also asked them to identify more subjective features of the music, like how complex was the melody, how complex was the rhythm, tempo, and beat, um, as well as ratings for like how arousing the music is, what the valence uh, of the music is, and, and how pleasant it is. Okay, so they're basically trying to break down why people might assign a given song to dancing or to babies. Right, and so they were able to show that there was some relationship between the song characteristics and their social function. So it turned out that dance songs tended to be faster, uh, more rhythmically and melodically complicated, and they had a happier valence. Then lullabies tended to be slower, rhythmically and melodically simpler, sadder, and less arousing. Yeah, I mean, you're not about to play Calvin Harris to put a baby to sleep, and you're also not going to rock out to Twinkle Twinkle Little Star in a club. Yeah, that's right. Although maybe Calvin Harris can remix Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. <laughs> um, so the researchers make some caveats about their study. So first of all, um, all of the study participants were English literate and had access to the internet. And this kind of makes me wonder if, had they tested folks from more socially isolated cultures, if they'd be able to be quite as versatile at identifying consistent, uh, consistent musical motifs. Um, since, you know, we're all on the internet and since music has become so integrative at this point, right, 
we've been exposed to a very wide variety of styles of music. If someone grew up in only one culture, exposed to the music of only that culture, would they still be able to recognize those common motifs? So in other words, has globalization trained us to be a little bit more polylingual when it comes to music? Right. I mean, we could play like West African dance music and then traditional Japanese taiko drumming in the same playlist. But if I were from a secluded tribe in the Amazon rainforest, there's no way I would get that kind of broad exposure. Yeah, and, and by the way, I love taiko drumming, and sometimes I listen to it at work. But, but anyways, um, there's almost certainly also an effect of globalization on genre melding. So, you know, for example, I've been sort of mesmerized by this crazy metal band out of Japan called Baby Metal. <laughs> Baby Metal? Yeah, I, I, and the name kind of reveals why this group is sort of crazy. It's, it's like combining speed metal and what might be called new metal with, like, K-pop, or I guess in this case, J-pop, because they're uh, Japanese. And it's like positive chord progressions and, and vocal arrangements. And I've, I've really been mesmerized by this group. You know, like some of the bands I grew up loving were groups like Metallica or Pantera, right? Uh, but then also some of the bands that were new when I was younger, like System of a Down and Slipknot and so on. You just sound like such an angsty teenager. Well, okay, that wasn't the only genre I liked, but but yeah, um, it's just so funny to see like video recordings of this band playing live in front of hundreds or I don't know maybe thousands of people wearing shirts with like Slayer or Metallica on them, rocking out to this sort of like positive and cutesy arrangement packaged in sounds associated with metal. You know, uh, the kind of thing that I don't know I'd find hard to believe would have emerged were it not for globalization. Anyways, a further caveat with this sort of universality of music study is a potential paradox. And this kind of research makes it enticing to suspect that perhaps these common features uh, to music stem from a common biology that we all share, right? And I can recognize a human brain no matter where it comes from. And that's true down to the circuit level. Well, at least, you know, the circuits, some circuits with which I'm familiar in my case. Um, but so is this anatomical similarity responsible for what these data indicate, that we all may be able to recognize the purpose of music from each other's societies? Or is it the case that since we're highly socialized creatures and highly socialized at a very young age, are we just conditioned to recognize that certain songs tend to be used in certain situations and not others? Or maybe a combination of both. Yeah, I mean, maybe. You know, I know I tend to suspect the former since, after all, humans had to write all these types of music, you know, in the first place. And it's not like, you know, those humans were sort of magically socialized by the ether, right? Um, however, it does remain to be proven that there's some biological basis to this apparent commonality across multiple styles of music. But of course, you would say that, given that, what was it, like 73% of neuroscientists predicted that this would be the outcome of the study? That's right, but hey, you know, maybe we're on to something. I'd love to see how the ethnomusicologists have responded to the study. Like, do they see the same problems with the study that they've seen in past efforts to identify some universal features of music? Yeah, so I looked for like a compilation of critiques of this paper and, and these claims, and I, I wasn't able to find like an academic publication that went point by point. Um, and this kind of makes sense, right? This paper only came out at, I think, like the end of January of this year. However, Alex Marshall um, at the New York Times interviewed some music, uh, ethnomusicologists. One, for example, uh, Matt Sakakini, I believe, a uh, professor of music at Tulane University in New Orleans. A city where music is very important. Yeah, that's right. And also, by the way, Tulane has an awesome neuroscience program, uh, and they really know how to host an interview weekend. I actually I interviewed at Tulane, and they held the interview during Mardi Gras. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so it was tons of fun. Anyways, uh, Professor uh, Sakakini um, said that the current uh, study, quote, is based on all kinds of presumptions, end quote, and that one of the presumptions is that you can 
they're presuming that you can remove songs from their social, political, and cultural uh, contexts, or draw conclusions from analyzing just a handful of lullabies. And so the New York Times author goes on to say that this professor, um, he, he would sing, uh, Hey Baby, uh, and I'm assuming they're referring to the song by No Doubt, uh, it was sung as, as a lullaby. And so um, he wondered how the authors of this research would deal with that, right? So, quote, my suspicion is they dismiss it as statistically irrelevant because it's not a lullaby, and to me, that's fundamentally a problem, end quote. And then there is the argument that more collaboration between scientists and ethnomusicologists was needed, and I, I kind of see the, the point there. Yeah, me too. Particularly if the researchers are imposing a category a priori rather than based on the possibility of variations in how songs can be used. Right. And um, Professor Ann Rasmussen from the College of William and Mary in Virginia, who is a former president of the Society of Ethnomusicology, uh, agreed and said, quote, I was trained to recognize that music is universal. Its meaning is not. Did the authors of the paper have the opportunity to make a rebuttal? Well, so it looks like Alex from, from the New York Times uh, contacted one of the main authors, Samuel Mayer from Harvard, um, and he said, quote, people all over the world interpret the music of their own culture in their own way. Uh, that's a fascinating topic for research, but we're asking a different question, whether people interpret the music of other cultures in a similar way. Okay, so that's a fair point. Um, and it seems like ethnomusicologists are more focused on sort of a different interpretation that music is indeed universal instead of the specific claims that Mare makes in the research. You know, I have the same feeling and, and much like we discussed with uh, um, regards to the possibility that people can be genetically predisposed to certain addictions in a recent episode, this kind of search for universal features of music has a similar tie to nefarious and grotesque ideologies. Uh, what? I mean, <laughs> how could that be the case? <laughs> right, yeah, it's kind of strange. So Alex in his New York Times article highlighted that in the early 1900s, some German scholars linked it with ideas about racial superiority. And Patrick Savage, an ethnomusicologist at Keio University in Japan, was quoted as saying, quote, let's see why Beethoven is the best music, unquote. So interestingly, though, Dr. Savage evidently assisted in this research. In what capacity? You know, I'm not sure, um, you know, maybe by providing some of the music clips, uh, but yeah, I'm not sure. Um, Savage does seem, however, supportive of this type of, uh, of an approach. He said, quote, I think the most interesting area, um, but maybe the most controversial, potentially even dangerous, is aesthetics. Are there potential universal standards for what is beautiful music, end quote. So potentially dangerous? <laughs> yeah. And so, again, he's hearkening back to the supremacist arguments that can sort of lead to the same ignorant place, let's say. Um, but it's worth noting that there have been alternative approaches to trying to identify whether there may be universal reactions to basic units of music. So not universal applications of types of music, but rather if most people will rate what, like a chord as happy or sad. That's exactly right. And so uh, Josh McDermott, um, an assistant professor in the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences at that other institution that's just outside of Boston, MIT, uh, published a paper. institution. <laughs> yeah, you might be a little biased, right? <laughs> uh, published in a paper, uh, published a paper in Nature in 2016 that basically showed that the type of reactions you were describing like finding a certain chord to be pretty or, or happy, while finding other chords to be unhappy or unpleasant, they don't seem to be universal. He played some chords and asked people from the United States, Bolivia, or a rather secluded Amazonian society called the uh, Chamani to rate the pleasantness of sounds. 
So just whether the sound is nice or gross. <laughs> That's right. And they did some creative controls to make sure that everybody understood the task despite not being fluent in English. And so if we were to make a hypothesis based on what this Harvard paper showed, then perhaps it didn't matter if people were from a secluded society or from the US. Right, and so that's likely what most neuroscientists might speculate. But they found that while US and Bolivian listeners tended to rate the aesthetics of these sounds similarly, the Chamani didn't find any chords to be more or less pleasant. They were basically equivalent. Okay, I see. So basically there wasn't a universal response to a type of sound. Exactly. And so, of course, as always, these are just two sets of experiments, and they're asking pretty different questions. However, the extent to which music preferences and predispositions are hardwired in the brain may be limited, though perhaps there are some broader characteristics of music that tend to be common across cultures. All right. So, well, why don't we conclude here? Once again, thank you for listening, and if you have a sec, we would appreciate a rating on iTunes. Yes, thanks for listening, everyone. All right, Ian, I have a question for you. Okay, shoot. So, by your eyes, was the dress white and gold <laughs> or black and blue? I saw purple and pink. <laughs> no, it was black and blue. It was so white and no, gold. No, seriously? How have we not talked about this? It was so white and gold. But you know the original dress is I know, I know, okay. but I cannot, for the life of me, see anything other than white and gold. Dude, that's crazy. I can't believe that. I wish I'd known that. We could have, like, talked about that a little bit more. Interesting. So you're, you tend to be wrong about things. Good to know. Nuh-uh. <laughs> <laughs>